Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody. I am the aforementioned Sal, along with my co-host, the ever-genial Eagle One of Eagle Speak. Thank you very much for joining us for another live edition of Midrats. <clears throat> Excuse me, if you all have been here for the last five minutes, you all would have had a good a good laugh to start the show with, but uh, I'm here with my ever genial Eagle One of Eagle Speak, co-host extraordinaire, and today we're having a pre-Valentine's Day melee. What that means is if you have any topics you would like for us to address that we haven't addressed, uh, if you have some questions for us, uh, you're more than free to join the chat room, send us a tweet. Or even, um, hey, you can call in if you want to. We always have the open phone ready to go for you. Otherwise, we will just march forward with what we want to on the latest topics of interest in the maritime and national security arena. And hopefully for the next hour, we won't have any fun little uh, technology challenges like we did until, what was it, Eagle One, 15 seconds before the show started that I dialed in? I thought it was closer than, than you know, like five seconds, so... Well, you know, it's all that great Navy trading. You know, how do you how do you work with under stress? It's like, ah, oh, we'll we'll work it out. But nothing's about to blow up except for uh, maybe you or me. So I guess it worked out just fine. Yeah, well, uh, I can hear you. That's good. <laughs> oh, my condolences to that. Hey, um, I thought we'd start off. It's funny this afternoon. I was thinking, okay, what do I want to to maybe start talking about today that's been on the docket in the last three weeks. And this afternoon over at Defense News, uh, Aaron Mehta, and who, of course, I'm mispronouncing his name as I always do, and David Larder co-wrote an article. And I was like, hey, this is a fun subject. Let's read it and talk up on it. And if you're in the in the chat room, which unfortunately doesn't seem to want to run today, which is probably related to the other problems that, that we had, um, so if you, for those who are on Twitter, y'all can look that up because uh, I, I tweeted it earlier about an hour ago. Or you can just Google Defense Secretary Mark Esper on how the Navy can get to 355 ships. And when we did um, early in January, when we talked before, that topic of, okay, if we want to get to a number, then we'll get to a number, how are we going to do that? Uh, that's 
that's marching forward. And I made all sorts of notes here in the margins. And I, I think the acting secretary of the, of the Navy is is doing the best that he can, uh, but that acting always gets you in trouble. Um, and it's interesting to see the Secretary of Defense kind of taking the point on this. Uh, I don't know about you, but the first thing that, that popped up to me is uh, a big red light started blinking here. And let me see see what your thoughts are. The things that he mentioned early on in the article leads me back to kind of the, the mentality that got us in trouble to begin with. It's the, quote, um, to get there, the Navy must push hard on feeling lightly manned ships, unquote, and optimally manned, unquote. And I think one of the things that got us in so much trouble 20 years ago is when we decided we wanted to aspire to certain things and would create optimistic planning assumptions combined with a little bit of unicorn hair, and we build anyway. Uh, that's kind of the, the thing that, that really started, and there's some other interesting points on there, but I was, thought I'd roll this way. What was one of the things when you looked over the article that caught your attention? Well, uh, I thought it was a, a kind of a revisitation of the argument that Jerry Hendricks uh, made Let's see, 2009, was it 11 years ago? When did Jerry write that article? Yeah. Uh, Fords and buy Fords, not Ferraris. And, um, you know, I think we've discussed this too. And I know that uh, uh, Claude uh, Barabee and I wrote a a, uh, piece for the National Interest about how to get to, you know, make your your fleets uh, have more ships, make them smaller, um, make them make them uh, heavily armed, and you know uh, the, 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 whether it's minimally manned, optimally manned, or you know let's get as many ships out there as we can, and and then we'll decide how we're going to work the 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 problem because uh, right now we have a lot of high price ships, uh, an exquisite force as as you know the Ferraris, and uh, that's great, but you need to have the the, the other ships that I hate to say more expendable, but all of those who uh, used to watch the John Wayne movie, they were expendable about the PT boat guys. Um, you know, that's it's really that necessity. And we've talked about we talked this about about this with Captain Wayne Hughes a long time ago. You know that that yeah. um, if you put everything, all your eggs in one great big basket, uh, when that big basket gets blown up, you're gonna you're not gonna have any eggs left. So you you need to dis- and we've you know this whole distributed lethality, which has now become distributed maritime security or something. Uh, more syllables. You know, yeah, more syllables, and you know, uh, probably a better bud word uh, than. Uh, but you know, it's the same. It's the same concept, and the question is whether, whether, uh, and I think that somewhere in the article it says, you know, what do we want that fleet to look like, and that is the key question, you know. And and if it's driven by having 12 carriers and the and the ships to protect them, that gives you one kind of fleet. If it's driven by not necessarily having 12 carriers, but having a lot of ships, that's a different kind of fleet. And, you know, the question is whether you can do it in a high-low mix of some sort. And that brings back the days when I was a, a young, very young naval officer when they did the high-low stuff. Um, 
and and exactly how we're going to do this. I mean, I, it's uh, it's a fascinating question. I'm glad the Secretary of Defense has got us on his radar. Uh, somebody needs to go to Congress and say to me. I, my other thought was somebody needs to go to Congress and say, look, uh, we we keep dividing this money up one third, one third, one third. The Army, the Air Force, and the Navy and Marine Corps, and uh, but we've got to stop doing that. You know, sometimes it, the need of one service is greater than the need of another service. And right now, the missions that you've got the Navy. Uh, chasing, uh, we don't have the force that's adequate to do that. We need to really get some more money to make that right. Now, I don't know where you're going to cut that, uh, who are you going to cut, but I have I have a few suggestions from our friends in green, uh, not, they're not meaning the Marines either. So anyway, yeah, that and was I, my thought. And that brought up, and, and I mean, you hit right on, on the spot there, is money. Because if they were going to do what we've been talking about for, and again, it goes back to having a national security strategy that makes sense for us. We've talked to here that we historically have been, and by nature have been a maritime slash aerospace power, and our budget should reflect that. But um, that one third, one third, one third look. It, they've also stated that. And this has a lot of programmatic issues. If your goal is to get to two, uh, to 355 by 2030, in spite of the fact that it looks like they are going to decrease the shipbuilding budget at the same time, then you've just compounded your problem. And sometimes if people are, have compounded problems and they're working under an artificial construct, they'll they'll grasp for things. And in addition to that chimera that we, we constantly had proved wrong, where you had the people come in and tell you how you can exquisitely and lightly man a program, to use that word against them as I like to do, you also have the we're going to assume technology uh, away. And we're talking about optionally manned or unmanned system. That's great. That's wonderful. But if we're working under a construct till 2030, Time is short. Uh, we have, you know, what designs are you planning to get there? I think the Russians are building some great little short-legged Corvettes that have lots of teeth to them, but I don't think they're going to let us build their designs. So it's got to be something that's either presently under production or pretty damn close to it um, in order to get those numbers. And if you're going to do it with a smaller defense budget, uh, a shipbuilding budget, regardless of what percentage that is, then you're going to have to really be humble and quick and efficient. And the only thing I can think of that's coming out of an American shipyard right now that minimizes technology risk, which you're going to have to do if you want this by 2030, because if you start building stuff assuming that your communications path, command and control systems are ready for unmanned ships to function in wartime, you're inviting yourself to, to for an epic failure. That's something like the Ambassador 3. Is that really what we want to build in order to get that, that 2030 number? Um, I'm, I'm open to ideas on how you start displacing water by 2030 with, with fresh designs. I guess that will come out in the wash, but um, there's more to follow. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, it's the challenge that a lot of us have been talking about for uh, I don't know, since uh, 1804, 
<laughs> whenever, whenever Jefferson had his gun gunboat fleet, I mean, what, what, uh, you know, what do we do to protect our country? And and you know that proved that gunboat philosophy. I don't remember exactly when that was, but proved to be a really bad concept. And and uh, so you know there is such a thing as being too light, and but there's also such a thing as being too heavy and concentrating all your forces in, in a too few baskets. So uh, greater minds than mine. We'll, we'll sort this out. But, you know, it is driven by funding, and Congress has set, uh, you know, I think they have some ideas of what they want to see built, and, uh, you know, it includes, um, and, and we're spending a lot of money on these on these strategic uh, submarines, the, the uh, SSBNs, and, uh, you know, because a lot of the ones we have are pretty long in the tooth, but, uh, you know, how... Um, you know, how are you going to divide the pie? And that's always the question. And, and who's going to get the money? And, you know, I know that uh, threatening to, to cut the Army budget is going to raise all kinds of hackles on the Army side. But uh, uh, if if we get out of the, the uh, wars in Afghanistan and uh, the Arabian Peninsula, perhaps we can uh, take a, a hard look at what we need for, for an Army and how it ought to be, ought to be manned. Yeah, somebody along the lines of it it takes Nixon to go to China. If you want to be optimistic, you'd say, well, it would take a West Point grad in tech theft to be able to tell the land forces they're going to get a smaller cut of the pie. But I've seen no evidence that that is the path that's coming here. But you you never know because we've – some of this is just – it really kind of looks like reverse engineering to a number because we've got to be able to point to some type of strategy to justify what we're arguing for. Um, you know, do we want this large fleet of of small ships that does everything from enable us to partner with more nations uh, than we could before to, you know, have some lieutenant and lieutenant commander commands at one end? Or are we shooting for near near peer and peer competition on a global scale? And as such, if that's what you want to do, how do you justify cutting our Virginia class submarine and that we refuse to build anything uh, more affordable that goes sinker? Um, that's kind of what we're doing. So uh, we're self-contradictory to a certain extent, and I think a lot of navalists um, – are willing to, you know, go behind the door, so to speak, duke it out amongst ourselves. But if somebody comes together and say, this is what we think is the best way to support our national strategy from the maritime realm, given the resources we think we're going to get, I think most people are willing to, to lean in and, and make it happen. There are different ways to achieve a goal, but you have to define that goal first. I don't think that's been done, much less – uh, you know, 2030, because they even admit that um, this is something that they need to uh, build quickly, uh, and they don't want to do it. Two billion. What's, what's the, the favorite phrase of the week? Spend two billion dollars to wrap around 96 VLS tubes. Um, yeah, I'm very curious on, on how they plan to do that. Well, you know, some time ago, I put up a blog post, and I think the Russians and the U.S. were working on uh, basically towed missile um, 
um, boxes. You know, you could <laughs> this. this uh, uh, the concept of this was you could you could take your VLS tubes basically and stick them in a in a in a vessel that you then either towed or somehow managed to keep along with you as you as you were out at sea, which you know you could put a, any number of of tubes on this thing, and uh, and then it would it would give you only had to have one sensor system and that would be on your main vessel, but you would have the uh, the uh, instant or uh, uh, assets of all these other other missiles. I, I don't know what happened to that concept. Now there's you know that's that's one of those uh, pipe dreams somebody came up with 30 or 40 years ago, and I don't think I've heard anything about it since. But uh, maybe for good reason. Maybe it's just too darn hard. Yeah, and 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 for good reason. And I was encouraged to see that that Esper, who knows this, an order of magnitude more than than we do. The fact that you've got to get congressional buy-in to it, and um, one of the quotes from the article was, "quote DoD will run this. I want to invite some of our congressional interested parties in, certainly from defense committees, to observe the process and watch what we're doing and how we're going about it. That's part of what I want to do is invite folks in." He's talking about the, some of the intellectual work and I assume wargaming they're going to be doing to justify this. And that brought to mind, um, give credit to him, Representative Mike Gallagher. And, yes, he represents an LCS district, but he's not an LCS congressman from what I see. He's, he's thinking broad like a good Marine. And, you know, he's, he's brought up something that you mentioned earlier about we need to look again at these big L-class ships that we have. Are there better ways for us to do that, especially in a high-threat environment? And you and I have talked over the last decade that we've done Midraps, that there is a huge risk that we take with these very, very large ships. That it is, when, when people start arguing about the big carriers versus smaller carriers, everybody gets their metrics out about, well, you can do this many sorties and this many times. We all know the math there. But there is um, a huge risk of having so much of your capability in so few holes is that your one well-placed torpedo shot are, um, to use the phrase the kids, all the cool kids are using nowadays, a nice hypersonic salvo away from losing one ship. And if you lose one ship, then you cannot execute what you got underway to execute. That puts your fleet at tactical and operational risk and that can put your nation has strategic risk simply because in peace you decided to build huge, huge platforms that you could move everything you wanted to move in two or three holes as opposed to five or six holes. So I think, you know, Representative Gallagher, I hope, is part of that group that um, SECDEF Esper is going to bring in to look at that because at the end of the day, you've got to have people with good staffs up on the hill that when the cam cameras aren't rolling and the curious ears aren't perked up, can go through there and do the hardcore nudge work to make the money and the bills work. So that that's good that they're getting Congress involved early. Yeah, I think it. I think it is, and I think uh, you know the it's a time. It's, I would say because of the long lead time to build large ships or any kind of vessel, really, uh, it's a different problem than. Uh, and you and I have discussed this, then, then getting 
100 or 300 people ready to go be a a company of of whatever i mean it's it's a it, you one of these things is not like the other and you know you you don't the question always comes back to how large a standing army do you need uh you know how much of the the equipment uh, can you just especially armor that has to be moved one way or the other how much of that can you uh, um, <laughs> uh, store usefully and and bring out as you get the people to use it. I don't know the answer. And it looks like we're not really going to hear much, and who knows how much they're going to put into open source until the, the summer, because they also mentioned in the article that they're going to do their series of war games and exercise in the next few months. And then hopefully uh, by this summer, they're hoping to be uh, finished up with a, um, I guess, what I tape, the cost assessment and programs evaluation folks will be involved with it uh, and, you know, figure out a way forward from there. So we're, we're looking at summertime, but the concerns I have is twofold. One, I would I would love to see their planning assumptions. What are your planning assumptions? And have they been properly uh, described and properly uh, argued about? Because as we've seen over and over again, a lot of times we've made things easy by using planning assumptions to get away from challenges. I'd like to see that. And I'm also concerned uh, where Esper said, quote, um, about bringing in, here's where the quote begins, gray beards as validators, folks who make sure that nobody put their fingers on the scale, who have considered all the factors, unquote. Uh, okay, who are your gray beards you're bringing in? Because if they're the same group of people that sold everybody on the utility of ZoomWalt, DDG-1000, put all that technology risk on Ford Hole 1, uh, I don't want those gray beards. I want a different group of gray beards because uh, uh, very few people, and I think the only person that has come close out of that group to doing a little bit of a mea culpa, subtly, but he did, was um, Admiral Roughhead when he uh, helped put together that uh, review of what happens with the Fitzgerald and McCain. A lot of those decisions were on his watch, and he was part of the group that uh, critiqued it. Um, not people. People matter because people are policy. And when you're doing planning, your assumptions are simple, and those assumptions are going to come from that group of people. So, yeah, who knows whether we'll see who they have in the background? But at least for me, I'd want to see that because that would inform me whether I want to, how I want to weigh what comes out this summer. Uh, I would. I would love to come out of it to go. Yeah, I may disagree with X percentage of this, but this is good work. Let's make it happen. But uh, we'll see. Yeah, I, I think the Navy is experimenting with stuff. I mean, I think the USS America, uh, with its F-35s, is out uh, in the East uh, China Sea area and, and maybe the South China Sea at this point. So th that's good. I've seen, you know, there's a, a. I really would like to talk about what they're doing with the LCS down uh, for Southcom, and uh, what yeah. what the message that uh, Southcom is. is uh, 
Baller, I think it is, what he's what he's talking about down there. Because because you know there is a mission for those ships, and as much as we've beaten them to death over the years here, there is a mission for those ships that could be useful and 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 help the rest of the fleet. Uh, by providing presence and stuff. Anyway, so I think the Navy is experimenting with, with a, a lot of good ideas, and I think that's going to help shape the future discussions. Uh, I think you know we, they, we've, but we're, we're we're as you said. I mean, the forward carrier they, they did so much with one ship, and then and now I've heard that the the follow-on carrier, the I guess it's the Kennedy. Um, is not going to be able to operate F-35. So, you know, and, and there, you know, there's a question there that whether that's, whether that's going to, you know, just is because like the Air Force, you, you build the, you know, how do you build an Air Force base? You build everything but the runway. And then, and then you go back and say, you know, we have this nice base with barracks and commissaries and all that stuff, but we, we need more money for the runway. So maybe, maybe the Navy has picked up on the Air Force way of doing things. Look, we have this nice carrier, uh, but we really need a couple of additions to make it uh, into an operational, uh, uh, u- operationally useful uh, air, uh, ship. I, I've got I've got to look that up. I haven't seen that. that now, are they talking about not being able to use the the Bravo or the Charlie? Yeah. I'll, have to, I'll have to look it up. Yeah, it, I, it, I mean, I I, uh, I heard that secondhand on on the. Uh, Naval Institute uh, podcast. So, and I'm who knows? I may have missed her. You know, my I'm old, my hearing, so forth and so on. A lot of that. <laughs> it, it wouldn't surprise me though. Uh, it, you know, that, that's okay. And uh, I think anyway, I would recommend that article to everybody. Uh, it, it should generate a lot of thought from everybody. Uh, again, uh, it's you can just go over to Defense News. But it came out today. The title is Defense Secretary Mark Esper on how the Navy can get to 355 ships. Uh, it's it's nice because when they're talking about summer. They're talking about the end of August. So <laughs> we'll we'll see what comes out at the end of August. Maybe we can arrange to have a um, a guest to come on Red Rats then who knows it real well and could get everybody viewers. Let's go. But yeah, if, if we have that yeah, come yeah, out. Of- yeah. One of the other things about the 355 number is it, it is a congressional mandate, as I recall. It, uh, Congress is the one who said you got to have 355 ships, and so you know, of course, they can say that, but if they don't fund it, I don't know what uh, what good it does. But it's an interesting uh, interesting issue that I don't really understand, having never worked on that part of the Navy where it deals with Capitol Hill. Yeah, and, and they've also, you know. President Trump has kind of given his marching orders to, to, to make it happen. And I, and I, not kind of, I definitely, if not empathize, then at least, you know, feel sorry for those guys trying to make it happen because if you've got to grow the Navy and you also are being told you're going to get a smaller shipbuilding budget to do it with, the old thing is when you run out of money is when you've got to start getting smart and thinking. It's maybe one of those circumstances and you've got to make You've got to make hard decisions. So you've got the money crunch, you got the number crunch, and you got the time crunch as well. Uh, that's that's an adventure. Uh, I wish, I, I hope we got all the uh, the right people uh, with good ideas playing nice in the sandbox together to come up with it because it's it's going to 
it's going to take some time. And I think one of the interesting things that came out at the, the end of the article, because when people think money, they always think carriers. And you mentioned what the America is doing right now, which people haven't seen it. Uh, the Navy's put out some um, some fun airplane video of uh, the, the Bravos working off the America. But, you know, Esper said that, um, quote, so we can talk numbers and we can talk about the size of carriers, right? There's been discussions in the past about do you keep building big carriers or do you go to smaller carriers, lightning carriers? Acting Secretary Modley and I have talked about that, unquote. And that, that sound everybody hears in the back of the, their head is uh, Jerry Hendricks screaming in about 185 decibels saying, we've been talking about this for over a decade, so a hallelujah moment there. Um, and that, that's okay. Uh, it takes a while for, for some ideas to, to soak in. So that conversation will have some interesting outcomes too. And we'll have another year to, to see how the Bravo model performs too. And the, the Japanese are looking at doing stuff. So I think there's actually a little bit of a renaissance uh, in the intermediate-sized carrier situation um, with the – or even small carriers – with where the direction the Japanese are going. Of course, the Brits have their QE2 class, which is more of an intermediate-sized carrier. But uh, that's okay. Uh, you wanted to distribute your stuff around, that's a, a good way to do it. And uh, I welcome the conversation. I, I do like the stressor of the less money, too, because it's going to come up with some interesting options. Yeah, and I think the other thing that we're going to have to discuss is the and it was in, it was noted in the article. You know, one of the issues with, and we talked, we discussed this with David Larger when we had him on a couple of weeks ago, was the uh, the issue of unmanned ships and the technology you've got. I mean, what do you, do you do? You have them unmanned, but they always have to operate within some reasonable distance of your fleet, or <laughs> are you going to send these things out by themselves across the ocean uh, and hope that uh, no bad guy just decides to. Uh, to out of acting out of interest, you know, here's the ship. I didn't know what it was, so I went and boarded and stole all the technology. Not that that's ever happened in our relationship with uh, the the Chinese. Can you say EP3? Yeah, that, that's the first thing that. Well, one of the first things that, that comes to mind if you want to do unmanned anything is how do you stop people from accidentally getting it caught up in their netting? How do you defend it? And more importantly. The one advantage of having manned ships is they're very difficult to make blind, dumb, and stupid because you can cut off all their communications to the outside world, and you still have a good wardroom and good sailors on board who will use their judgment to take care of their, their ship and each other. But if you make an unmanned anything, death, dumb and blind, then it's just a piece of technology waiting for you to pick apart. And um, that that is part of the technology that we can make work in peacetime, but I don't think we've really thought through the wartime implications of that. And to really make that a huge chunk of what you want by 2030, I think it moves from the realm of being aggressive to being irresponsible. Unless there's, you know, technology already in existence that uh, I'm not cleared to uh, to know about, but we've we've heard this argument for quite a long time, and I just uh, and we haven't even addressed um, 
I'll resort to my in-house counsel. Um, the lawyers are going to have to have a close look at this too. What can and cannot you have be automated? What you can and cannot do in war, in peace, how do you adjust ROE? With, anyway, it's just that's a tough problem that I don't think in late 2020 that you need to set a roadmap for 2030 where you just have a bunch of assumptions that all those things are going to work out. Because I don't think they will, at least not in nine years. Yeah, I, I think we've had a couple of discussions on autonomous weapon systems, and and along with that, the the issue of the uh, legal and moral aspects. And you know, is there a man in the loop? Uh, oh, sorry, person in the loop, um, <laughs> or you know, is it going to be like the the predator drones, where there's somebody sitting in in uh, someplace else watching what's going on all the time and make, making sure that you know that that there is a person in the loop. Are these things going to be autonomous? Are they just out there to, to be radar pickets and, you know, kind of expendable uh, uh, units that, that can help uh, um, relay information to the main body of the fleet? I don't know. Really interesting questions. I, I, I'm, I really look forward to seeing what, they're, what, the, what the thinking is on this, as much as they'll discuss it out loud. So. And I think there's, um, you know, sometimes I, <laughs> every time we, we we talk to them, it's it's amazing the the wor world's at least for now premier superpower in the media ecosystem, and uh, so much of the good stuff just comes out from a few people, you know, Chris Cavus, David Lauder, uh, Aaron Maida. I mean, we can count them on on, on one hand or two, and uh, I kind of laugh because. If it's sad. I would really love for there to be really good maritime security-related things that I can read coming from Washington Post, New York Times, major media here and there. But it's it's all in-house publications. But there's not much you can do. But uh, earlier on in um, last week, you know, Chris Cavus he um, had an interesting bit where he had talked to a retired Navy three-star about all the problems that, again, uh, David Lauder wrote about it as well, with the Optimized Fleet Response Plan, um, OFRP, however you want to talk about the acronym, and, and it just reinforced what we talked about earlier, that this whole thing has come unraveled because uh, what this retired three-star said is spot on. He said, quote, any plan with assumptions that prove to be untrue must be altered. OFRP had several key assumptions that proved themselves wrong, set maintenance time frame, deployment manning levels at the start of the basic phase, and equipment configuration control within the carrier strike group, just to name a few. If you have all these planning assumptions that prove to be invalid and you don't have a branch plan to deal with them, then you can, you can have all the greatest plans that you want at year X, but then at year X plus three, you have nothing but but negative effects that, that come out of it, and that's that's kind of what, um, like I mentioned earlier, is is my biggest concern with this. Well, it really looks hurried, um, but you know when the boss says, "Give me a plan for 355, and I want it by the end of the fiscal year," well, you produce the best you can, and you you go forward from there. But 
some of those assumptions about about manning um and optionally man ships that just that's a big red light for me we'll see yeah well let's talk a little bit about uh the caribbean <laughs> and our and our is doing drug ops and showing the flag and uh other good things is admiral Fowler, i believe his name is uh, is he on the right path there? That this is a good thing that these these ships are actually proving useful for a for a real world mission. Well, I think I think it's great. First of all, that we've got LCS more than one of out there and deployed. There's um, a lot of good people, a lot of smart people with billions of dollars have been working hard the last half decade to to go, yep, the past is the past, but we got them. Let's make the best of them that we can with regard to LCS. And they they need a data set on how, especially from a engineering point of view, how these systems are holding up, how the adjustments they've made in Manning is working out. The Caribbean's a great place to do it, and we can't show the flag there enough, I don't think. And uh, it's it's a place we know well. And so I think it's um, Caribbean deployment was a a great place to do it. And there are also the the Freedom class is out there in Westpac as well. We've we've all seen some stuff recently from the South China Sea. Um, so we all kind of pinged on them for taking a, a couple years hiatus as they tried to get their story straight. And now they have this big batch of deployment, and we'll we'll come back with some good information. And the South America is, is so much different. Uh, Central America is its own, also has some bright spots, but it's it's what it is. But when you look at South America, back when we were JOs, that was dominated by communist insurgencies, military dictatorships, um, and those countries down there have some great. Uh, intellectual capital, people capital. They're trying to get some functional governments. Um, Uruguay and Chile have, have made great bounds there. But uh, it, it's it's good that we can get a naval presence down there uh, to all of those coastal nations in, in South America because if they can get another decade or two of good governance under their belt, they're going to grow strong economically. Um, we also have a, a lot of cultural ties to them because of uh, immigration in the last 60 years. And so the, the more we can go down there as not the cliche that we heard when we were young, but as the uh, less of the, uh, the intrusive neighbor to the north, but the friendly neighbor to the north, I think from a, an economic and a military cooperation point of view, nothing can be good from, I mean, nothing bad can can come from us getting a presence down there with uh, the LCS based out of Mayport. It's just a short jump, too. So it's good. I, I look for it. And um, maybe Navy PAO could have them put out <laughs> a little more stuff uh, that, that we can get a, a handle of because I know a couple of the PAOs I've talked to in the past, part of their frustration is not having major media pick things up. But it's a different ecosystem out there. There are different ways for the Navy to get that information out there. And I hope we can maximize that because that is a big part of the mission is the presence. You know, here's America. Um, we're here to help um, and, and to play around for a bit and 
we'll be back again in a few months. It's, it's nice to see. Yeah, I think uh, also Admiral Fowler made a good point that there's a lot of Chinese stuff going on and of course, where isn't a lot of Chinese stuff going on? But Jamaica, El Salvador, a couple other places, um, you know, they're, as he put it, they're inside our first island chain uh, with some of the developments they're working on. You know, and I don't know whether that, if we, once again, whether we overemphasize the threat of China uh, or if it's, uh, it's, but it is a good point that uh, we, we have interests in this hemisphere that, that uh, we need to protect and, and, you know, I, I could see China uh, getting excited about Venezuela here pretty soon. I know they've already uh, made some inroads there, but um, it, it's worth – I'm glad that, to see that people are paying attention. And that's where a, a, a all-of-government effort can really help out because what China does, whether it's Venezuela or it's Cambodia or, or some of the nations in Africa, is they are targeting and focusing on those nations – that don't have very good rule of law, don't have a very robust press, and and through the usual graft and corruption, they can bribe the right people to be able to do things they cannot do or get away with as much in more uh, fully formed nations. Now, of course, the British and the Germans are trying to prove me wrong by partnering with them with 5G, but you know nobody listens to me. The so if we can have an all of government support in in South America as well as well to help them sustain and build their economy, good government, individual liberty, things of that manner. I think in the long run that will help us against Chinese influence in a lot of those nations because they don't want to be vassals of China anymore than they've ever wanted to be vassals of the USA. And uh, that that will take more than, than LCS to import visits. But you know, if push ever came to shove with China, they would be a little overextended in our hemisphere, but they could definitely make things difficult in the first few weeks, unnecessarily so. But we're kind of in their backyard. If I was, if I was Chinese, I would tell Americans I'm not interested in complaining you're in my backyard every day if a a Chinese ship is is cruising by in your time zone well deal with it and get used to it so I can I can see it from the Chinese point of view too yeah let let me commend to the listener uh, Sam LeGroin's uh, USNI news uh, article he and uh, Megan Megan what name I should know we've had her on the show yeah, Eckstein, Eckstein right? do a great job. Yeah, yeah, they do a great job reporting. But uh, he has a, this article about the South American Southcom deployment. It's called uh, Fowler Navy deployments to Southcom about more than just drug, tra- drug trafficking. And you know, the other yeah. thing that's in that article that kind of piqued my interest was that uh, there was some discussion about using uh, the Spearhead Spearhead class uh, EPF uh, has a has a, a tender. For the LCSs uh, that they would operate down there, you know, apparently as a proposal is being floated. But I thought, well, you know, we were talking a little while ago about the Navy playing with some new ideas. That that's a great idea to to try out, and uh, yeah, that would keep the LCSs on station longer. It, it makes a lot of sense. It turns it into basically a a pocket tender, because you know what's one of the LCSs' shortfall? It's 
uh, manning and the ability to fix a lot of their things internally uh, and also resupply and endurance. So if you can have the right people, equipment, and facilities on uh, one of those spearhead class ships that can be, you know, kind of a, a tender to go along with them, especially if it's uh, um, like I believe it is, you know, military sea lift command and contract civilians as well. That's an interesting concept to, to flush out. I know our our friend uh, Sal, um, the other Sal, Matigliano. Did I get it right that way? I know he probably supports that, but yeah, that's that's an interesting concept. Yeah, and speaking of Sal, the other Sal, Mercurgliano. Mer- there we go. Well, I'll get it right one of these days. Sal, I'm sorry. Whoever Sal, Sal M. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I get it wrong, but uh, you know he's uh, he's been he's been noting a lot of the effects of the cor- corona, what do you say, coronavirus, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, and and the impact it's having on international shipping. Uh, speaking of things that can can screw up uh, the just-in-time economy uh, of a lot of different countries, the uh, ships are not, you know, they're being held out of out of China, and uh, that means a lot of good things are not going in there that will be turned into finished goods, and a lot of finished goods are not coming out of China. And also, whatever trade you've got with China is being held off the coast because everybody's afraid of this this virus spreading, which it seems to be doing pretty rapidly anyway. Um, yeah, I think. But it the, does um, point I out. Think... I was going to say, it just points out the the importance of of the sea trade uh, and the maritime security role of of why we have a navy to allow you know the free flowment of ships and and also to stop. Um, Things like a, you know, like a ship full of contagion from from coming into our area. And you know, that's one of the things that's it's hard to understand is the the actual scale of China because the 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 city and the province around it that they've kind of quarantined, it's it's the size of New York City. It's no small place, and it'll be weeks to months till we figure out. Is you know how much of this is hype, how much of this is you know a, a real pandemic. I will say that a lot of the and we really don't know because China is a closed society. Um, but some of the video that has leaked out of there, the, the Chinese aren't acting like it's overhyped, and um, it's already jumped to other nations and. Uh, one of the things that that will determine how virulent it really is is um, is it one of these diseases that if you have good medical care that i.e. access to hydration and antibiotics that you have a high survival rate even if you get infected Um, or is it one of these that modern medical care can't handle the surge and that that's something only time will tell. And unfortunately, I think it's going to have to get it's going to have to spread into nations that are more open and have a, a medical care system that also isn't part of the political apparatus. So you can get some legitimate numbers. I'm sure there are folks at the CDC in Atlanta that have really good figures that they're they're keeping close hold, which is probably best. 
um, to let this thing uh, work itself out. But the, the economic impact uh, will be, uh, I guess, will manifest itself like it usually does in six to 12 months on, on a global scale. But the I think watching the merchant traffic would be a good leading indicator of that. From a national security point of view, I don't – besides the potential of bringing um, – some type of domestic turmoil or loss of confidence in the Chinese central government and the Communist Party, that might have some impact. But um, I think besides that, uh, it's I don't see much of an impact on the national security arena, especially when you consider the, the Spanish flu uh, was raging at the, the last year of the First World War and was raging through the Russian Civil War and the, the – the, the wars after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. So I think you can still, and heck, you can go back to the Middle Ages during the Black Death. They were still fighting each other like crazy people. So pandemics, yeah, just just add to a, a more miserable environment. That's a pretty uh, <laughs> that's a pretty sanguine view of things, I guess. Um, another <laughs> note of interest with the Chinese. Apparently, they sent a flotilla that is. Uh, couple of destroyers, frigates, some other ships. This is a Chris Cavus report, by the way. Uh, that uh, that's crossed the uh, international dateline. That's not a big deal, but they're out and bopping around in the uh, in the middle of the Pacific, which uh, I find interesting. Well, that again, that's part of them getting used to operating and uh, getting underway, working as groups. I think. Um, Especially as we're talking about decreasing our shipbuilding budget, as the Chinese are growing theirs quite aggressively, I don't. It almost seems as if we are very focused on our internal concerns, internal as in a commute distance of Washington D.C. Uh, we aren't really looking <laughs> at what rising powers are doing and what we need to, to counter that. I think the classic uh, example of that, you know, it goes back to these silly little budget battles that we get for parochialism where the Army is talking about, well, you don't need the Navy Marine Corps forward. We're the Army. We're going to have a bunch of land-based missiles that can counter the Chinese land-based missiles. I'm sorry, unless you're willing to be first strike, um, to to paraphrase uh, <laughs> great men, you know, static bases are follies to the are monuments to the folly of man type of thing. Um, I, I think again, Congressman Gallagher wrote well about this, as, as other people have, that it, you need mobile, hard to fix. Uh, resources and bases to operate out of and you know huge static air bases with huge static buildings and um, land-based missiles that are stored together probably not the best way to protect your uh, deterrence from a first strike and you know we're, we're just talking conventional here not nuclear and the chinese do have because of the inf treaty that we have finally left They've got a head start on us on that, um, and I know we can have some mobile systems as well, but I don't 
think that we have that many land-based options in Asia that are really that attractive um, because we don't have national sovereignty over most of those areas where we want to put Yeah, one more one more uh, item of interest I thought was that the uh, people are getting concerned, or not concerned, but at least pointing out that the Russians are, this, I guess, a, a uh, fourth fleet, I don't even know, second fleet issue, um, subs, Russian subs operating off the, uh, the Atlantic coast of the U.S. again. And, you know, uh, I don't know how, how we're, what our ASW stuff is doing these days, because I don't not, was not a part of that community, uh, but it's interesting to note that uh, the more things change, the more they remain the same. I mean, we've always had Russian things off our coast for as long as I remember. Well, so, yeah, and the thing that's different this time, and uh, God bless the Russians. Let's let's go send them some goodwill packages, uh, like we used to back in the good old days. Uh, because you, you can't buy training like that. It's nice for them to come out and play, and there is a threat there. But um, the, the thing that's different now is the number of units. They're just – it's not like back in the day where you had a Victor three deployed to the Med, and then as it was out chopping, another one was in chopping. They just don't have the numbers to do that anymore. There are some localized issues. Um, and we, we shouldn't downplay it. It's good that the people who are more likely to, to have that issue off their coast, the British have got the P-8 that are coming online. Uh, the Norwegians, I believe, are also updating uh, their uh, airborne NPA. Uh, they, the, the problem with ASW technology is it really hasn't changed dramatically. Uh, over the last of the few decades, but neither have the submarines to that regard. But you not only had that come back, is uh, you know two other <laughs> things like you have to check the date time group on the on the stuff you're reading. Is uh, we also saw the discussion of small nukes. You know, it used to be back before targeting technology got better that our and they still are to a certain extent our ballistic missile submarines or our city busters. It's our don't nuke us because if we nuke you back, uh, even if you take out all of our Minuteman 3, uh, we have our ballistic missile submarines here that are just going to eliminate your population. Um, now we're putting small nukes, which are still bigger than Hiroshima bomb, but small nukes. And also talking about bringing back landmines. Uh, it's been a long time since we've been uh, in the landmine business, and I don't know where that's coming from. I don't know if you have any visibility. I can see um, a couple of – I jokingly said, yeah, people can pay me a, a consultation fee and uh, get me behind the skiff door, and I'll outline some of the <laughs> reasons we might want small nukes on ballistic missile submarines. But the landmine things, uh, I don't know where that came from or how, uh, who's really asking for that. What, what, am I, what am I missing? I don't know neither one of us are land combat guys, but I was looking around. For anybody who's saying, yeah, let's bring back anti-personnel mines, but, but there it was in the news. Well, I, I have the feeling that it's a uh, if you ha you know let's let's uh, let's pick, pick places where the bad guys are on one side of a border and the and our allies are on the other side of a border, and we don't want to keep massive forces there to protect them. Uh, you know these these uh, sophisticated mine system does present just like a, a, a sea mine 
you know, it's not necessarily that they're there. Uh, the, as long as the bad guy thinks they're there, he's got to slow down and take it easy. So uh, I think that it it is always a mistake to announce any kind of weapon system that that we you know we're not going to use this. Well, if I'm the if I'm on the other side of that. If I'm the bad guy, I'm going, you know, or the, or the red team, I'm going, well, if you're not going to use that, then I'm going to design things that'll, that'll, that I don't have to worry about that. I'll just roll right right through those areas. So I, I think that's part of it. Uh, and you can you can pick your own location where that might be of yeah. use. Yeah, that would, uh, as we, again, fix defenses. It's easy to go around, and I'd hate to have to... Uh, Going on offensive through my minefields, but yeah, I, I land land combat's not my area of expertise. I don't think um, in Congress you're going to find anybody who's going to stand up in front of a camera and, and support that because they'll they'll be pilloried. Uh, but it was just really interesting to see that. I, and uh, I, I'd offer to the listeners if they know of anybody who's really put forward a, a good argument. Uh, on why we should be expending funds on on landmines, I'd I'd love to hear it. I'd really love to instead of landmines, I'd really like to uh, talk about uh, submarine-delivered mines because one disadvantage that the Chinese have as a continental land power is they they they've got pretty limited bases that they can operate their navy out of, and uh, you can clog those things up if you want to, uh, from a, from a variety of places nearby. Uh, that's that that has a pretty good history of creating effects, um, uh, but I guess you're right. There are a few defensive places. Maybe our maybe our maybe our allies would be the, the better people to lay those minefields. But I wouldn't have anything to do with them. Well, I, you know, I, I always assume that that when you're talking land, you know, the layered defenses, right? So I, I'm, I assume yeah. somewhere we've got a secret plan to bring back the abatis. You know, the, we're going to have these these long logs cut off and sharp with sharpened points and uh, dig some holes and lay, lay a layer of those out too. So, and it, it might be tied into um, and for those that are interested in the land combat side of it, uh, I'd recommend to you uh, Steve McGuire. He is a British Army uh, captain. He had a nice little article. Uh, on a subject near and dear to our heart, well, related to a subject near and dear to our heart, um, over at Small Wars Journal, um, and it concerns the uh, the feedback on 2017's uh, very high readiness joint task force uh, that that NATO had that went up into the Baltics uh, to try to look at uh, on a dynamic way how we can reinforce the Baltic republics and a threat from the east uh, because there's been a couple of studies that said the Russians from a, from a cold start could without proper reinforcement in about 60 hours, they could, they could take the Baltic republics back, which I'd always encourage somebody to go to the comparison map. These are small countries. You know, they have populations from, I think what 1.3 to 2.1 million from uh, Latvia to Lithuania and Estonia. And, but I think the the defender of Europe, which is the modern version of what we grew up with, is, is Reforger, that we, we had the attempted turbo activation of our uh, military sea lift command ships, which we talked about a few episodes ago. 
Uh, that's something that you know people say. What use is NATO doing? What could NATO do? The deploying units to the Baltics, doing stuff like Defender Europe, which is the uh, variation on the Reforger theme. Uh, those are the types of things uh, that you can do in small units. You know, X number of countries provide Y number of companies to combine to do brigades to work together. Those things are scalable. You learn a lot. Uh, you test some systems. Uh, so I, I'd offer to folks there if they wanted to, to learn more about the, the analysis of, of 2017's uh, NATO Very High Readiness Joint Task Force level. Look at Steve McGuire's article over at Small Wars Journal, and I look forward at some point to a, a similar write-up and analysis of what we do with Defender Europe, uh, especially with relate, how it relates to our, our allies and, and what they can do. And we all, I, I, another thing that was in the news this week, we all like to make fun of, uh, of the French, but they have a, a very good military is doing a lot of very good work in North Africa, but they also have the nuclear deterrence, and they got something that I don't think we need to worry about our commander in chief doing. But Igor, did you see uh, the pictures that they got? Uh, they put President Macron in a helicopter, put that puppy in a in a harness, and uh, lowered him down onto one of their boomers, and he got underway on the one of their ballistic missile separations. I was just picturing. Uh, uh, President Trump dangling from a harness with his tie flapping in the breeze, but no, I don't think that's going to happen on our end. But you know, that, that's okay. Good. It was very, it was, it was very Jack Ryanish, wasn't it? <laughs> that's exactly what I thought of. That is exactly what I thought of. I kept waiting for the exos to get electrocuted and fall into the water, but the French, the French did it better than Hollywood. So you got to give them. Well, Macron. He, I mean, I think Trump weighs what about a buck? Uh, you know. 240 or so. Macron's a, a, a scrappy little Frenchman. I think he's, what, 5'7", five, 5'8", five, lucky if he breaks 175 pounds or something, so he's easier to move around like that. Yeah, well, that's... Yeah, I mean, I, I admire him for doing it, and I'm sure that those guys who were working on that problem are going, well, let's hope we don't drop him. <laughs> Could have been bad. And, and that, that That's one thing I, I was thinking about. I was like, They've gone through the you know the risk analysis, and uh, it could, uh, and that's why you got to give Macron credit if he's willing to take the risk. He's like, yep, this could happen or that could happen, but y'all do this in theory all the time. So I trust y'all not to drop your president into the North Atlantic. Let's go forward and do great things. I don't know if you know. I don't know if we're still using bosun's chairs to transfer people from one ship to another, but uh, <laughs> you know that was always it was always exciting if you had somebody in the chair that nobody liked, because uh, <laughs> uh, they could they could, oh, yeah. they, they could they could get very wet. Um, but anyway, I just I just did look up to the clock and I realized we've we've gone through our, our hour, but even and I think it was relatively a quiet week in the uh, maritime and national security arena. But there, there's always a lot to go through in there. And for the listeners that are they're here with us too long, I would encourage you if you have some bot set up on Google to send you alerts when certain things come up, I would, I would do that for this plan for 355 because to have Esper lead with that, um, I know that the acting secretary of the Navy, Modley, 
he's taken it very seriously, and I'm sure he's kind of frustrated that they're having trouble getting the news out. So it's good that uh, um, they were able to, to get some press coverage on this just to start the conversation now because if if we're going to really come up with a plan to 2030 and they get there with a lower shipbuilding budget, there's going to be sacred cows gored, there's going to be eggs broken, dogs and cats living together, gnashing teeth, rending their clothes, screaming, crying, yelling, uh, people putting their houses on the market. It's going to be fun to watch one way or another. And I'm, I'm sure at the end of the day, if they upset everybody, then they've probably come up with a good plan. So I'm sure we'll be able to get a couple of episodes out of it. Yeah, speaking of upcoming episodes, we should probably tell people that we're not always just going to be two guys yapping away. Uh, we do have guests <laughs> in our future. Uh, you want to tell we're, people we're who we have back. coming up? Absolutely. We, on the on the 23rd, we've got uh, Dr. Dimitri Gornberg to come on. I'm ever, we, we were going to have him on earlier, but uh, life gets busy, and um, that, that just kind of happened. So we're going to have him coming up on the 23rd, and uh, oh, who else do we have coming up? Um, we're in conversations with a couple of other people. I think we're just waiting to get final confirmation on. I don't want to don't want to sell it too early, but we do have some very interesting stuff coming up after after Dimitri Warnberg. Good. And, Beautiful. Uh, and uh, be better. We're like the two chipmunks. After you, no, I said after you. It's funny. I got an email. I got an email from a a, a concerned listener, and uh, we we love our listeners and we appreciate all the feedback. But it was a new listener, and uh, uh, just as a reminder to everybody, we don't have a studio that we do this, so we don't have eye contact, we don't have cue cards, uh, we're just we're at a distance. We we don't have um, a video feed between the two of us. So we, we do appreciate the, the listeners' patience where sometimes we have some dead air and sometimes we step on each other. But um, until we get that, that, that big money sponsor from Raytheon and Lockheed that's willing to fly us together to go meet, we'll still have to have, to have our show like it is. But it's, it's always uh, talking with you, and uh, I appreciate all the listeners who have, have come on board. And if anybody ever has an idea of a, of a topic they'd like for us to work on, or a guest they would like to have on MidRep, please please drop us an email or a DM on Twitter, whatever works. Absolutely, and send us uh, send us emails. I think both of us have our email addresses on our websites, and we're also on Twitter. So anything you want to uh, to think us to think about or talk about, let us know. Yeah, and we also we we take correction where appropriate and. Uh, <laughs> Our friend Jerry Hendricks was listening to us today, and uh, we, we do have a factoid here. Uh, 355 was first put out by the Navy in December of 2016, and then Congress made it law. And in the finest traditions of the Naval Service, <laughs> the second quarter of FY20, we finally come up with an answer to it. So there we go. Yep. <laughs> You know, that, and uh, that, I can't see, I can't I can't see the signal flag. So if I hold it up to my blind eye, so <laughs> finest naval tradition indeed. 
Well, we'll be talking to you soon, and um, have a great week. All right, you too. And thank you very much for joining us for another edition of Midraps. Until next time, hope you all have a great Navy day. Cheers. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.